We're doing the podcast. I'll get it. Oh, you want to do it? You want to do a level test? I don't know. Probably. You should. It's usually pretty close. I counted. I have interviewed on the air somewhere between two thousand and twenty-five hundred people. Really? Yeah. At DVX or all over? DVX. I remember uh, I went to a uh, string cheese incident blue plate special that right. you hosted, and uh, <laughs> I loved those guys back in the day. Still love them, but uh, it was it was cool. I was like, man, Matt Morlock's got the coolest job out there. He gets to talk to my favorite band. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, you know the the guitar player for string cheese incident bought my house in Hawaii. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, and he lives there now. I knew he lived there. I didn't know that he bought your house. That's where he's living. It was my old house. Billy Nershi. Bill Nershi. Yeah. yeah. And his wife, Jillian. Janet. Jillian, right? Uh, is it Janet or Jill? I think it's Jill. I think. She's a musician too. They play. Yeah. What island was that on? Kauai. Kauai. Yeah. Never been to Hawaii. Last time Mike McGill was here. He talks about his trip to Hawaii. And he come think, and stay at my house. Yeah, he did. I saw him on the way back from the airport. I saw him in like Dallas or something like that. He was like, I'm on my way back from Matt's oh house. My God. That, that guy brought like a trash bag of psychedelic popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> oh, man. I think I... Uh, yeah, I, I remember when you when you moved out there. I just you know following around your, you know following you on on Facebook or whatever and all that. And I remember reading like in one of your posts, I just dug in. Yeah, and you had like, I forget what some guy said something to you, and you were just like you know called him an asshole or something yeah. like that. And you were like, I forget what what you said, but you you blamed it on the psychedelic popcorn. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Too much popcorn. <laughs> well, I am. Uh, I know the the microphones. No, no. Uh, you're no stranger to that. I mean, going to the Blue Plate special for years when when you were here. I guess before you had moved to Hawaii, I got to see you interview all these amazing artists. And I, I did. Was there was there a, a big one for you when you were over there that you really just kind of pinched at the radio station? Yeah, a little pinch myself moment or anything like that, or. Is it all just like buddies coming through? I mean, I know you're friends with all these guys too, which is kind of crazy. Not at first. It wasn't just friends at first. Um, at first, I mean, if I pinched myself was just kind of went after I, you know, the deal with WDVX was it, it was just in a camper in Anderson County. Yeah. Up in north, north of town and. God, I was 20, 21 years old. Really? And I sent Tony Lawson, the founder of the station, or co-founder of the station, and the manager, a, a letter. I typed it on a typewriter and sent it to him. Like, I really love banjo music and really have fallen in love with this radio station. And I did some radio at the uh, with the, just little bit of radio down at the college station at, at UT at ninety point three The Rock, 
It wasn't called that at that time. It's punk rock stuff, but yeah. I fell in love with bluegrass and sent Tony this letter and never heard back. Really? And I was like, oh, crap, all right, whatever. And then uh, kind of had my feelings hurt. I mean, I'm like, I'm, like, I'm like 21 years old, I think, 20, 21 years old, learning how to play the banjo. And uh, I finally heard him on the air and called him, and I said, what the hell, man? <laughs> I typed this letter. I wrote it to you. And he's like, oh, I remember that letter. Oh, that's right. And he said, you know what? Our Monday night DJ just quit. You want to, you want the Monday night spot? And I was like, what? Is it that easy? And he said, yeah, come on up Monday. You got the spot. I'll show you how to use all the crap. And I was like, okay. And I went up and I, he gave me like four hours on Monday night and told me to come up with a show name. And I, at the time, I was really into taking a lot of herbal supplements. Yeah. And there was an herbal supplement called Happy Camper. And I had a T-shirt from them that said Happy Camper on it. We were trying to figure out a name. And I looked down. And I was like, what about Happy Camper? And he was like, great. We're in a camper. Perfect. <laughs> so for like, <clears throat> for like the next five years, every Monday night and for four hours... I would go and do two hours of American traditional music, and then two hours of international traditional music. And I was getting my musicology degree at UT at the time. Mm. This perfect lock-in where I was, I was working at Pick and Grin Music in West Knoxville, selling guitars and teaching music there, going to school for music. And I was a DJ at WDVX getting to do American traditional music and international traditional music. I was fully immersed and I was playing bands and doing all this crap. I mean, it was like, that's, I think probably the biggest pinch me moment was when I realized I'm absolutely in love with music. I'm absolutely in love with learning and surprising people and I get paid to do it. And it's awesome. Yeah. I've always wondered how you, <clears throat> I mean, you obviously have a deep passion for it. None of the Morlock music days, uh, or when your name kind of was was on the biggest street in town, and you could still uh, is, yeah. <laughs> I guess you're right. I know, like eight nine years after yeah. the store closed. Well, and like when the uh, when the football games would come to town, and ESPN would bring the crew. You know, you were the you were the 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 cultural <laughs> mouthpiece for for East Tennessee and Appalachian music, and oh, so, some of those spots and the. You know, in the broadcasts. Yeah. So, like, the timeline of that, right, is I'm at DBX teaching, doing all this stuff, playing in bands. And then um, the radio station worked a deal with this building that was going to get built on Gay Street, on the corner of Gay Street and Summit Hill, that was going to be the Knoxville Visitor Center. Yeah. And um, they were looking for something to put on that piece of real estate. And it... Uh, the upstairs were going to be admin offices for what was then called the Knoxville Tourism and Sports Corporation. Yep. And the ground floor was going to be this epic bar restaurant thing. And they offered to DVX to do shows there. And uh, the idea was to do a show a week, but they couldn't really figure out how who to host it. And I knew how to operate audio equipment. And I was a musician. I was in school for music. I was all this stuff. And after a few of the DJs, I think Tony Lawson hosted it a little bit at the beginning. They asked me if I wanted to do it, and I just was like, hell yes. <laughs> so um, that's when I started hosting the Blue Plate Special, and, and I was so in love with that job 
I I hosted two or three bands a day, five days a week for five years straight with no vacation. You didn't take a break. I didn't take a break. Any of that? No. Because it was every single day, every five days a week, 52 weeks a year, right? Every single day. And I think about how much that maybe really messed me up. <laughs> like, I messed up for a lot of reasons, but I think that might be the biggest one. <laughs> like, whoa. Yeah. But I got to, I mean, I got to meet my music heroes. I got to play with them. I got to, you know, these, I got to establish friendships. You know, I was hosting the show. I booked the show. I would mix the show. I would sit there at the console and mix yeah. the room mix and the broadcast mix wow. and interview the bands, sometimes sit in with the bands. I, I had deals worked at the time. Downtown Knoxville was very different than it is now. And who knows, whenever somebody's listening to this podcast, it could be 10 years from now. Yeah. Who knows what the hell that city's going to look <laughs> like then. But um but I had deals worked with a couple of the restaurants where if I said, I'm feeding the band at this restaurant, thank them on the air, then I could take, if the band was cool, basically, if they were nice to me, I would feed them after the show. And then if they were really cool and they were playing in town that night, I would let them stay at my house. And uh, God, I, it was so cool. Booking the bands, hanging out, establishing friendships, making out with the lead singer. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I got to do all the great fun shit, man. It was awesome. And um, and these are friendships that have sustained me to, to this day, to this day. I, I, will go, I will be anywhere in the world and I'll see, I'll be at a show or something and somebody will tell me a story. Some, you know, with that volume of people, I can't remember everything. And they'll, but they'll remember yeah. and uh, they'll remind me of some crazy crap I got into that I don't even, I don't even recall to this day. <laughs> But that was, the blue plate was awesome, and it was it was a an unbelievable like mainline injection of how to put on a show, how not to put on a show, how to arrange a song, what to wear, what not to wear. Right. I could write a coffee table book on van farts. <laughs> <laughs> These bands, dude, think about it. These bands are on the road eating gas station food, gas station food. <laughs> and up late the night before load in for that show was 10 a.m. Right. Really, the show was on at noon. Right. And they would show up just having woken up, hung over. I can't tell you how many bands asked me for cocaine. <laughs> like... <laughs> And I'm like, you're talking the wrong guy. But man, the farts were epic. I don't think I've ever really talked about that. But I really like, I could be like, oh yeah, you guys. <laughs> you stuffed it to the 407 yeah, exit. Yeah, that, four, yeah, that Cracker Barrel on 407. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hash browns. <laughs> Taquitos. <laughs> Got it. So did the blue plate start at that? Did the blue plate happen when it was, when DBX was still in the camper or did it not start? It wasn't until- officially called the blue plate special. There was a guy who worked for years, a wonderful guy named Roger Harp, who um, uh, really was, he was such a hustler with that kind of stuff. I think, and uh, I always give him a lot of the credit for really making a lot of the exciting stuff happen with that station. Um would think, you know, in downtown Knoxville, you remember you were younger, but like you, it, it was at the time 
there weren't any chains. Mm-mm. There was an Arby's. It was about oh, Arby's and Subway were down there. Yeah. The only retail establishments were like Yeehaw Industries, my shop. Maybe the wine store had just opened. That was it. Yeah, like, there wasn't much. There wasn't a movie theater. There wasn't a movie theater. Yeah, like, no Babalu, no Mass General Store. No, Mass General Store had just opened right when I opened as well. But yeah, the city was, there wasn't a lot going on. And thus, anytime I would, I did shows, I you know, this is later in our timeline that we're talking about right now, but I eventually opened up a music store downtown. Um, that was a funny accident, how that happened. But How'd it happen? But... um. I got a great deal on a ground floor, and for Knox Villians listening to this, on the corner of like Gay and uh, Wall, Wall right there is that is that at Gay and Wall where Mass General Store is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's the Lerner Lofts, and there are some ground floor apartments there. And I got a, I met this sweet woman from California who owned one of them, and uh, was talking to me about it. And I said, "Well, I'd love to live downtown. I just can't afford it." And she said, oh, how about you just move into my place? It's $600 a month. And I said, okay. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. I got the, and it was this beautiful apartment right on the ground floor. And I moved in and, it, you know, I was still hosting the Blue Plate and I was playing in a lot of bands. And it really tied in with all the venues. And I worked at Pick and Grin Music in West Knoxville, yeah. like I said earlier. So I knew how to run a music store and the bands weren't going to drive to West Knoxville for right. for stuff. So I just started stocking strings and things like that in my apartment. Really? This ground floor apartment. So I was just, I hung in a curtain across the whole thing and in my apartment just started selling crap out of the, out of the apartment. And eventually the neighborhood association or the building association was like, yeah, maybe that's not legal. <laughs> and I, started looking around at the time once again roger harb uh he's uh, i was asking him do you know anybody super well connected guy i said do you know anybody that could give me a sweet deal on a retail space i think i might want to open a music store and uh he hooked me up with david ewan who owns the 411 building which is where the wine store is and uh Sutri's yeah. and Sutri's wasn't there yet, right? But that what's now Sutri's and uh, the arcade bar down yeah. there. Who knows what it's going to be in ten years? Whenever yeah. somebody's listening to this podcast, <laughs> but um, it was a check cashing place that had long been closed. There wasn't shit Whoa. in there, nothing really. Yeah, and uh, he said, "I tell you what, I need somebody to demo this space and build it out." I'll give you a deal, and I'm not even going to tell you what kind of deal he gave me because he would probably turn red in the face and be angry. But I got an amazing deal on that spot if me and my music buddies would demo the place and build out my shop. And he was super generous, unbelievably generous in helping with gear and permitting and stuff. And I really learned the permitting process and got to know. And, of course, the city government were very excited that a retail establishment was opening downtown. And they already knew me because I was the host of the Blue Plate Special. And they right. all came to the show. And, uh, man, the the city really rolled out the red carpet for me and the owner of the building. And I had so, countless number of people who really chipped in and helped um, to open that shop. I mean, we were in the black in like six months after really? opening that place. And, um, 
So it did. I mean, it started doing well off the bat, even though the, I guess the population of downtown. And I'm a terrible businessman. So (laughs) So it was really (laughs) an anomaly. It was magical. (laughs) I remember there was a really brief period of time. And I know we're not supposed to talk about this on your family friendly podcast where I tried to sell drugs when I was in like a senior in high school. (laughs) <laughs> and that was the worst. It lasted about a week. First of all, I didn't like drugs. <laughs> second of all, second of all, I couldn't even ask people for money for them. I gave I gave it away, and like eventually, I think uh, my parents, if they are listening, I remember when I got arrested. I remember once for trying to smoke some grass in a car with a friend and we found out that we were parked in the woods behind the chief of police's house and they thought it was really funny. Anyway, I gave up on selling drugs. I was about as good at selling drugs as I was at selling guitars, but the music, (laughs) the music community, some really great, wonderful people uh, came out and helped keep the store open. I didn't make a whole bunch of money, but I made a living. It was good. And so were you still doing the blue plate too? I quit the blue plate to open the store. So you moved on the other side of your apartment then from your <laughs> my life there for a few years. I mean, it was I li- two blocks. Well, yeah, I lived. I moved to, uh, the store opened like literally in the building next door to where my apartment was. Uh, I fell in love with a woman who lived across the street above Mass General Store and moved in with her. Eventually, gave up the apartment, and uh, yeah, my life was like literally. I woke up. Walked down the stairs, walked across the street, opened my shop, spent the day there, walked across the street, go upstairs and go back to my apartment for a few years until we moved to Hawaii. So, Did uh, Alan Sims was on the podcast and he told me where he lived, the the apartment building he lived in, said it was above Mass General Store. I was like, hey, um, can you fill me in on the, the guy that got thrown out of the window in that? In that building? It was me. <laughs> it was not you. It wasn't me. <laughs> I, that may have happened after I left Knoxville. No, it was like three years ago. I don't yeah. think I don't think you were back yet. No, I was not back yet. Yeah, it, it was just a few years ago. <laughs> I was uh, I, I gotta be uh I gotta be a uh, commercial break. Oh yeah. <sighs> Modelo. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Modelo's killing it these days, by the way. Yeah. It's good, good beer flavored beer, but also mm-hmm. there, uh, there, there's advertisements all over the Classic place. Classic branding. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, I, I remember uh, when you moved to Hawaii. Uh, it, you know, could, we were running kind of in the same circles around that time. Mm-hmm. But uh, also remember when you moved back, and I was like. W- I, we needed him back. Like we, you're that's just, so sweet. Well, I mean, we do. You, you're part. You really are a huge part of our music scene that's around right. here, and not just not just the music scene, but the the music. I don't know the the community. I feel like you're just a a good. You're kind of a microcosm of what our of what our music scene around here is, especially as it relates to folk and Americana, namely. Um, but you were kind of one of the first one of the first uh, uh, guys in their twenties, you would see with a banjo around here, you know, yeah. this was before playing the banjo was cool. No, still not cool. Well, <laughs> I love the, I love the banjo jokes. I have got, I have the banjo. I mean, I, this is a Knoxville podcast. The banjo has taken me to some of the craziest places in the world to do some of the craziest crap. I could tell you, this could be a five part series of all the insane shit that I've gotten into playing that damn instrument. Really? Oh yeah. So why is that? Why? I mean, uh, you're because I'm good. a weird man. <laughs> 
And I'm not afraid. Gotcha. To take risks and do strange things. But you're you're obviously good at the instrument, but are there not a lot of people who are good at the instrument? There are a lot of banjo players who are better than me. There's I will be the first person to say that. But so so why did all these these opportunities happen? Just you you were the you were the first guy to say yes or or I think I got a I will be. Pro- I will not be able to answer that question. I mean, until the day I'm dead. I'm serious. Like some of the stuff that I've gotten myself into. Like I gotta write a book about it. Yeah, and it, it has to do with a lot. It's just a confluence of a lot of things. Being in the right place at the right time. Um, I think not being afraid. I, you know, I teach music lessons, and I've, one thing I've done through all of my life, even when I was, you know, a fruit farmer in Hawaii for nine years, I still taught music lessons. And a big part of my job is teaching people to get over their fears and inhibitions. Mm. Um, so many people want to do something that they could do, but don't because they're afraid. Mm. And uh, like learning to play an instrument is a big part of that. And we've... So, like, for me in my life, I think it's just not being afraid to approach somebody, um, not being afraid to hear the word no, even though it hurts every time still. Yeah. Yeah, um, but still, maybe I just have a terrible memory for how bad it sucks to fail. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so that's, that's interesting. You said that you're not afraid to hear no. Yeah. But it hurts every time. So yeah. that's – so I – I sometimes am afraid to ask for something because I don't want the conflict of hearing no. Yeah. You don't have that? No, I totally have that. You do. I'm a giant sissy. Yeah. No, my feelings are hurt on the daily. But and but I just forget about it. I think I just like I just let it go. You know, and I don't even think I consciously let it go as a as a part of self-growth or whatever. I think I just forget like when my you know, I don't like it when somebody hurts my feelings, but I forgive people like in an instant. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's because I'm like a righteous person. I think it's just because I forget. <laughs> I'm like, I would rather be friends than enemies. You really, really got to do something awful to me for me to hold on to a grudge. Right. Like, and uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's I think that's a big part of my why my life has been so crazy is because I'm just a dumbass, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I envy that. Like, I, I, I envy. Careful. It. Yeah. <laughs> so how? So how did you get? How did you get tied tied up with Bela and Abigail and and all that? I mean, I, I've always known that. I don't know. Um, I just like anecdotally in my you know heard stories over the years of you know Bela spending the night at Todd Steed's house and they stay up picking until three in the morning and yeah. Ashley Caps is there and you know and and there's this whole like cool cool crowd in town that hangs out with Bela Fleck when, <laughs> when he's around Mitch Rutman you know was around in that time playing music too and heard a lot of these anecdotes from him but it's like how did how did you get tied up with like the probably I'm trying to think if there's a more uh, like uh, a, a more famous banjo player than Bela Fleck. No, there's not. There right. probably, and then there never will be. Well, how did you guys become friends? Um, I guess I I met him. 
I'm trying to think about when we first met. When we first met um, was when I first met a lot of my banjo heroes. It was in Boone, North Carolina. I think it was in 2006. I don't remember years mm. very well, but um, this was at like when the the research about the um, black banjo, uh, the history of black people that invented the banjo was becoming an in vogue thing, and people were starting to pay attention to and write about that history. And um, I was finishing my degree at UT, and I had written a paper that the title of the paper was What Happened to Black Banjo Players? Hmm. They invented the instrument. Where the hell are they? Yeah. And so my paper was answering that question, which has been exhaustively answered at this point in right. academics and pop academics, and there are all kinds of documentaries. There were none of those at the time. Right, but the answer is only 18 years old now or yeah, whatever. Right. Like it, it's, not been, it's not been public knowledge for that long. Right. And my, and my paper that I wrote made it to the desk of the director of the McClung Museum on UT's campus, Jeff Chapman, who's not there anymore, but one of the most amazing dudes in the world. He's a Knoxville Renaissance man, Jeff Chapman. Okay. If you can get him on the podcast, he will tell you some stories. Hook us up. Um, he, um, he called me into his office. Mind you, I'm like just finishing my undergrad degree. And like 25 or six, I forget how old I was. And he was like, this paper is amazing. I had no idea all this stuff about banjo history. And I said, yeah. And he was like, you think you could do an exhibition in a year? Like, would it, could I give you a year to put together a banjo exhibit at the museum? And I was like, this is a Smithsonian affiliate and like legit university museum. I'm like, like kind of like a stoner banjo player. Like, uh, I mean, probably. And he said, well, how long do you need to find out? I said, I need to make a few phone calls to see if it's even feasible. What's the square footage I have to fill? He told me we walked through the hall where he wanted it to be. I said, I'll get back to you in a little while. And I made a bunch of phone calls and, uh, Ended up finding out that the following month there was going to be this giant black banjo gathering in Boone, North Carolina, um, where everybody was going to be there. Bela Fleck and Mike Seeger and um, Don Vappi from the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. All these cats were going to be there. And um, he, and I, all these collectors were going to be there and historians. And I was like, this is like the mother load of sources for an ex exhibition like this. And I said, yeah, I think I can do this. Uh, if I, I'm going to go and schedule a bunch of meetings with these collectors and guys. And that, that's where I first met Bela was there. And it was one of his first dates with Abigail as well, who I had met before on the blue plate as a singer songwriter, just, ah. just learning to play the banjo. When you say it was their one of their first dates, you mean together or together, like yeah. playing and no, they weren't together. playing. They were just oh. there to attend the exhibition. Ah. So they yeah. had met, they, is that where they met maybe or, or no, they had met in Nashville. There's okay. a, that's a whole private story. I'm not going to sure. share, sure. but, um, I was just like, that is so cool. Because Abigail was just so sweet and wonderful. And Bela was one of my heroes. And we stayed in touch because he was starting his research with that stuff. And I was a little bit ahead of him as far as like, I'd already been to Africa uh -huh. and done a bunch of field recordings. And Really? Yeah. And uh, I, he, I opened the exhibition. I ended up getting flown all over the country to visit the greatest banjo collections in the country and get to bring the prime specimens back to Knoxville to 
wow. sit in the basement of the Mukbang Museum and prep them for a display. And I wrote a book about it and all this stuff. And and right as we opened it, Bela Fleck and the Flecktones were coming through town and they wanted to uh, see the exhibition. And it wasn't open yet, but I gave them a private showing. And that's where I really got to know Bela, I think, was yeah. that couple of days that they were in town. And we just stayed in touch over the years, just here and there. Um, you know, we don't we don't hang much. We just did a we played a wedding together for some, for a friend in West Virginia a couple of months ago. Cool. That was fun. <laughs> but like, um, he's good, man. That guy, he's good. Man, he makes makes all the notes. Yeah, he ended up doing his own really cool documentary. If anybody's listening and haven't seen Throw Down Your Heart, it's Bela goes to Africa. Yeah. It's basically what my trip to Africa was like. Had I. Had a film crew. <laughs> a film crew and like tens of thousands of dollars to yeah. spend on yeah. something like that. Well, but. you just did your, uh, you just did the big ears, uh, the big ears deal with with Abigail, uh, the the kids thing in the morning. It was right. so cool at the, at the jig and reel. I mean, I guess, I guess you, uh, were you production managing the, the uh, jig and reel that yeah. weekend? Yeah. Okay. I got, I got, I remember when Ashley started big ears, I thought it was the craziest was far-fetched dumb idea and he was my ba- my guitar student actually at really? the shop and i was just like you could this city's not ready for something this ambitious and right. he, but the, the thing about ashley is like he goes to festivals all over the world and he knew i mean that guy has you, you want to talk about somebody who has spent his lifetime taking huge risks and not being afraid of hearing the word no in this city there isn't a single person that lives here currently that can even hold a candle to what he's done. That guy has made and lost untold amounts of money taking giant risks when it comes to music and exposing the city to culture. So I don't care. Area that guy shits gold nuggets. Like it's amazing. So it, it, it was interesting this last weekend to see the you know the Yo Yo Ma situation that that came. blew my mind. Blew my mind too. I mean, yeah. and I went when because we were we were filming. Uh, you know, filming for, for Ashley, we, uh, we kind of knew the, knew where Yo-Yo was going to be. And so we got to all his pop-ups, you know, I was at with a camera and just like, it's hair on the back of your neck standing up. You're like, am I seeing, you know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest cello player of, of all time, uh, you know, at Lakeshore park right now in front of 75 people. It was amazing. But then the, the draw that that it brought to World's Fair Park on Friday it was amazing. It reminded me of the hot summer night stuff of the nineties. Wait, it was bigger. It was it. Yeah, it was bigger. There were more people there than any of that. Stuff. It might have been one of the bigger turnouts for a concert, like period. Well, it, it, and I, I thought I didn't think it was going to be. I didn't think it was going to be that. We've got a clue in the listener who might not know what we're talking about. Yeah, it's hit just me. That like there just a couple of days ago here in Knoxville, and who knows when you're listening to this, there was a huge concert that um, that Yo Yo Ma's team actually put together and kind of produced and proposed with the Big Ears folks as the local sponsor and help around here, and it was just an, this an amazing <clears throat> collaboration. And and back to what you were talking about with the music itself, I wasn't nearly as impressed. I love. I'm not. Imp- I'm not. I, I'm not completely blown away by virtuosity. Mm. I'm really not. Um, I'm. I'm blown away with soulfulness and genuine, genuine delivery. Mm. And God, I sh- I showed up to that thing 
wanting to roll my eyes at how pretentious it was. Yeah. And they delivered this unbelievably beautiful message um, about, you know, Yo-Yo's, Yo-Yo's idea about how the Appalachian Mountains, and he, he's been spent a lot of time up in the Smokies too, his idea about how, you know, this is a, this place has been completely clear cut and historically redeemed, turned into a park and has regrown and to become, when they were talking about how it's become this living, breathing organism sure. that wasn't that way before and how, how beautiful that is and uh, how it's an allegory for what we could be doing with our society now. Right. And the way that they produced the event and delivered the messages. And, you know, I was really fortunate, actually, to not be on the production team for that, because I know that backstage people were arguing and, like, there was all this crap going on. Right. <laughs> like, a van was late and flights were missed. Sure. And it was all stuff that would have distracted me from what and it was ultimately a beautiful message. I, I'm sure that by the time somebody's listening to this, um, you'll be able to find out more about our common nature. And yep. I, th I think Yo-Yo is planning on continuing to build this this project. Yeah. And uh, from the folks I know that were working that show, he was a minch. And like just the, apparently just took personal interest in even the van driver and the, the porta potty guy and was just, super kind to everyone and obviously he's, he's a great player but like that wasn't what struck me and i don't really think that that's what struck much anybody i think it was the spirit of the thing that made sure. that such a spellbinding event yeah i think if you went for a yo-yo ma show you might have been a little bit maybe disappointed even if yeah. you just went to to hear him play his cello because it wasn't about that necessarily. It was about the region. It was about the past of the region and it was about his vision for what it could be. Right. And he brought in some of his, you know, some close musician friends and people who represented diff different ethnic uh, and, and even different, uh, you know, diff different I don't know, different parts of, he had LGBTQ represented plenty. He had, uh, oh. you know, everybody, it was, it was all about being a, a, a melting pot on stage. It was beautiful. And I thought it was hilarious. And since this is an independent podcast, we can talk about this. Sure. I thought it was hilarious that the sponsors were well-known right-wing Republican millionaire were donors. <laughs> Yeah. And it was the wokest thing I've seen on yes. stage in a long time. I was just thinking about some of these, like, <laughs> these people that... <laughs> Yeah, their names got tied to it. Backroom people, their back, their names got tied to like what was very, very, very much a very progressive message. Yeah, by a lot of people that are these same people are hiring politicians to legislate their Against lives the, out of existence. Sure, yeah, you know? and I that 
that's i think probably was the biggest thing for me like whoa i didn't even think about that yeah dude that's what paid for that shit really yeah no look at look at the sponsors below it was like every major republican donor (laughs) oh that's great (laughs) it was so good oh that's so great do you you think ashley shot his shot with that then but do you think that something like that could happen again i think he gets a pass yeah and i also think that you know while these these are definitely like republican donors and and I do know enough of like members of those families to know that while they um, they are identified as that in private and in their hearts, they actually support. They're they're not like uh, they're not hot button issue Republicans. They're not like they're not the anti LGBTQ Republicans. Right. They are because they have those members in their family, maybe. Right. Well, and, I, and they also they're just like we just want to pay the smallest number of taxes possible, and for our businesses to have the least amount of regulation imposed yeah, on. Yeah, it possible. makes sense for us about Republicans. But they, I, I know for a fact that a large number of those people are very conflicted currently with the state sure. of the of uh, of politics in the country right now. So it's very interesting. Yeah. This, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it, it is. It, and I, I got the same vibes from seeing Yo-Yo in like small groups around town o- over the weekend. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was so unbelievably kind to everybody. Yeah. And they were his team was very was very good about getting him in and getting him out quickly. They did the thing at Lakeshore. Yeah. I got this amazing long lens shot shooting under this canopy of trees. And you've got Yo-Yo... R.B. Morris and Ashley Capps, all three walking together towards the stage in slow motion. And I was like, these, this is, these are, you know, two of my favorite Knoxvillians anyway. And then to see him with, with Yo-Yo and, and then to just to see how he treated everyone that, that, you know, was able to, was able to uh, interact with him. And he went out of his way to, to uh, the native Americans when he did the show at the, uh, at the burial mound, uh, at uh on on ut's campus he was unbelievably gracious with them they did this group dance where they get in a almost a conga line in a circle and then they walk around and do like a spiral and a snake and and then you know yo-yo comes in and grabs hands in between two people and goes through it with them and then you know i look up and there's chris thiele holding hands with one of my friends going through the going through the thing and then you know it was it was it was very much uh you know they were careful to 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 be sure that he wasn't that he wasn't you know overcome or bothered with fans or whatever but he was uh unbelievably kind and just felt like an, another person who was there to just spread a spread a good message and to be a good example and i i really can't think of a time on the four let's see one two three four days i spent with yo-yo ma while he was in town like i can't think of of something where politics or sep or, or any kind of divisive kind of uh uh where there was any kind of division among anybody i mean it just felt like one big loving community and i feel like he uh is he did what he set out to do and that was to show that we're all the same even if you know no matter where we fall on either side of the the aisle or, you know, ideal ideology or, you know, the, the, the culture wars that, that that's not what it's about. 
it's it's about it's about us being human and it's about us being grateful and appreciative of one another because that's all we got and it was it was amazing and and he, at at the end of his lakeshore show you know every, everybody was standing up applauding and he said please give a round of applause for ashley caps the man has big shoulders and he's got <laughs> he's got he's carrying all of us he's cool. let me tell you something about ashley caps i guess as a crazy person yeah yeah like in a in a beautiful way, right? But, the risks you mean? You think? Yeah, dude. Oh man, like we were talking earlier about how I'm not afraid to hear the word no, and how I'm not afraid to take risks, and have thus gotten myself involved in some interesting situations. He's like that times fifty. Like he's like that dude. I think he, the risks that he was taking when you and I were children, young children in this town were like big city level risks, you know, opening Elegurus and stuff like yeah. that. And, um, you know, and it's funny, I, I, I produce events and get involved in stuff all over the country and I've... I haven't even told you a tiny slice of the crazy shit that I've gotten to do on the road with <laughs> rock bands and uh, and bi and big giant stage productions. Um, Doxville is a cool town with a lot of really interesting people in it, but to run big shows and to make big entertainment stuff happen, you have to have a special kind of hardworking person who will do what they're told, who is good at what they do. And, um, you know, I, I, I hear some shade thrown on my friend Ashley sometimes. And, I may, I, and I've maybe thrown that shade here and there about, man, he was such a dick when I showed up high to my thing 15 minutes late and I didn't have my work done. I'm like, well, no, that's what you got to do <laughs> to get shit done. Yeah. I, I, I got to say, it's no matter how many events I've been involved with him either as a performer or as a as a as a an employee. Um that guy, like I said earlier, he shits gold nuggets, man. You gotta you gotta give respect. Like he's figured it out, figured out how to make the business work. And I think he needs to retire because he's gonna lose his goddamn mind because he's gotta be worn out after at least COVID and yeah. all the crap. You know? Yeah. And you know, when he was here for the podcast, like I, I wish it could have been a six hour podcast. I was trying to be respectful of his time, but you just can't I mean, just like you or anybody else who's been around doing it for a while. You can't get through it all, yeah. and you know I would I would love to hear about the the Elegaroos days and and how hard it was because there were I, I've heard so many stories about you know the struggles that that place went through and you know ultimately closed. It might have been doing great when it closed. I don't know, but it wasn't. Yeah, um, I know this is like a, a Knoxville is awesome podcast. But there's a lot that's not awesome about Knoxville when it comes to hard work, when it comes to follow through, when, it, you know, sometimes you kind of like, I think one of the reasons you kind of got to have an iron fist sometimes to get people to do their fucking work, man. Yeah. Like I, I have had to be that person and I've had to be on the receiving end of that. Right. To learn, uh, to learn that like, this is a really comfortable place to live. It's easy up until recently. It's been really easy to kind of do your job half-assed and still be able to survive. 
And it's only, I think, with this raised rent and this higher cost of living in Knoxville since the COVID quarantine that I think people are going to be held to a higher and higher standard Good. Of, of, of like excellence. Um, and uh, it's going to be, I, I hope it's good. It, it will, it will de-scruffy the city, um, but that's inevitable with any growing city. Uh, but like, it's, you gotta, you gotta do your job and be good at it. Don't be lazy, you know, like, do what you say you're going to do. Reply to emails. Answer the phone when somebody calls, especially if you have business with them. That kind of shit. And, man, I've had to deal with that. I, I, I didn't deal with it as much when I was, you know, my, my community of people when I was, the years I was living in Hawaii were all the highest level. You know, my first best friend on Kauai was Tom Petty's tour manager. And, I, and the reason that I moved there was because me and my wife were – house sitting Bob Dylan's production manager's house. And I got to see how their business really works at yeah. the highest levels. High achievers, I'm sure. They went out there. And there were very simple rules to follow. Mainly just work hard, answer the damn phone. Yeah. Don't lie. Yeah. You know? And um, if somebody fucks up, hold, the, hold their feet to the fire. Yeah. You know, so it was pretty interesting. Well, I, I, I look at like, yes, I, 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 would, I would love to... Uh, I, I don't necessarily think this is always a, a you know Knoxville's badass podcast because I do think there are some warts out there and and uh, I I think that in the you know in the film business we run into this all the time with like you go to a you know a big film crew comes to town for instance and it's like you know the question they ask is are you a local or a professional and it's like it's kind of fucked up but yeah. it. Kind of is also maybe sometimes not that far off base. It's pervasive in the entertainment industry about this city specifically. Really? And, and it's, um, this is a city that's just a large enough market for, I mean, I'm dealing mainly with touring acts. Sure. Where it's a city that's just big enough to where there is a big enough potential market to, for there to be a reason to stop here. And, um, a, lackadaisical enough local infrastructure and crew to where people don't stop here and enough people that just like kind of shit the bed when it comes to getting the business stuff done. And, yeah. um, Knoxville's famous for it. That's why I really, how many, yeah. No, how many, how many bands heard that should stop here, that tour in a direct line towards Knoxville, skip Knoxville and go to Atlanta the next, you know, yeah. like, um, it's, not just not just crew and and people working, but also audience. Like very fickle audience for touring bands. You know, you know, you can't count on it. And, and it's also we're in this weird place right now, venue wise. Hopefully, by the time you're listening to this podcast, there will be other venues open and more stuff happening here. But um, it's tough for bands to get paid well and to count on dependable good audiences here. 
the university community, uh, the kids at the university are not at all intertwined in the in the arts community. It's kind of wild. Unlike most other university towns. That's, right. I think that's probably the biggest problem. You think? You look at uh, how many people go to UT, like 80,000 people? Or no, something? it's like they have like 30,000 undergrads okay, or something 30, like that. But there's probably another 10 grad students or whatever and faculty, you know. Right. There's probably, it's probably a footprint of 50,000 people yeah. by the time and, it's said and done. Which is any, anywhere else in the world you go, there's 50,000 people at a university. You can guarantee that at least a few hundred of them are going to come to a, any concert that gets booked in the town. Right. And they just don't. You think it's because it's just a football party school or and th- those folks just aren't bent that way? Do you think it's a lack of kind of uh, infrastructure for artists at the university to where it doesn't attract people who are you know, interested Prob- in, in, in culture? Probably a little bit of everything, but I think, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of hip cats that go to UT. I'm sure some of you listening are UT students that, that are like, oh man, we're cool. It's just the bars suck. Yeah. <laughs> or none of the bands that I like come to play here. Yeah. Or I got to go all the way over there and there's not a bus and I don't have a car, you know, something yeah. like that. Um, I've always wished that there were a more active courting of UT students to, especially for me, music venues. Like, um, but at the same time, like, you know, play for a bunch of kids. Come on. I yeah, gotta the, sell, I got to sell alcohol. The tall Pauls of the world. <laughs> yeah. That dude, that's a hustler right there. <laughs> that guy's figured out how to pay the bills. Yeah. yeah. Is he still around? Paul, I wonder. I haven't talked to him in 15 years. Was he playing when you were in college? He had to be. Oh, shit, yeah. Playing. Oh, I was a, I was a, oh, yeah, man. Golly, he was the only guy I knew who could pull a pull a crowd, who could draw a crowd when he played. Uh, I don't know, Ruby Tuesday, Tin Roof, whatever you know was happening. I think having a good a good nucleus, yeah, you know, that's where like that we were in that sweet spot when uh, my shop was just opening in downtown Knoxville. WDVX was humming hard, doing a lot of community events. Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot else going on in town. There was a little, but not a whole lot. Um as far as local local stuff. And we could kind of count on a clot of people coming to do stuff and it being fun and everybody getting paid okay and all of that. And uh the city got big. I don't know. There I think there are also just a lot of old white dudes that control the levers of what, <laughs> where the money goes. Yeah. And um, they're not letting go, you know. And what yeah. what is it about our seeming seemingly just fertile ground of musicianship, musicians and bands? Entrepreneurs. Yeah. Artists of all kinds. Sure. Yeah. Why are we... Why are we in a, you know, Grand Torino super drag? Like, why why are those the biggest acts that we can all kind of name that came out of here? It seems like with the just disproportionate amount of talented musicians that we have around here, how come it doesn't seem like, you know, why does it seem like Chapel Hill, North Carolina has more famous you know mainstream acts than knoxville tennessee they have a more affluent um group of rich people you think yeah 
Well, but they also, I mean, I guess they also, they're, they're part of a bigger metropolis. I mean, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, that's all the research triangle university. Yeah. And it's, and it's over a million people by the time it's done. So it is twice as big, if not more. They are sports focused universities, but they are much, much, much higher intellectually. Yeah. And, um, they're separated from the ultimate problem in, uh, East Tennessee. And that's, um, pervasive religious conservatism. Really? And, uh, it's not as bad big of a problem there. And uh, people are afraid of freaky things happening. But is that why we don't have anybody breakthrough? Like, I mean, you know, Black Lilies, Black Cadillacs, Dirty Govs are like the the ones in the last 10 years that I can think of being like nationally touring acts that just never quite got there. Robinella, like all these these acts just seem to have everything. They had all the... They passed the eyeball test. They passed yeah. the earball test. But it's it's almost like there we don't we don't put we don't put musicians or bands really in in the main stream that much. It seems like, and that seems odd to me. I mean, you you would think we would have we would have something hit, and I just I I I can't figure I I really can't figure out the answer because you go to Preservation Pub and you can hear pretty good music you know m- most nights and you know you go around town you get local acts that are they're very talented I just I'm not sure I understand why we're not seeing why we're not seeing you know top forty music or even you know alternative alternatively popular music patronage it's just patronage yeah like, I mean there are people that. People that get good enough to get big in this town leave. Yeah. I mean, that was, I heard a great interview with Johnny Knoxville about his life here. Really? And they asked him, like, what was the most important decision you made for your career? And he's like, getting out of the shit ass town that I grew up in. Really? You know, and um, like, there is so much money in this town. Yes. There's, and there is so much possibility. And that that's what we're there once again, back to the our common nature thing that we were talking about. Those guys, the Boyd Foundation, the Haslam Family Foundation, and a couple other groups put down a mountain of money to make that happen. Yeah. And thus something beautiful happened. Yeah. Um they didn't hire any local talent, but I'm not gonna talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um but like you the Pay to, you, you have to people have to be able to pay their bills with what they do or they're going to do something else there are a lot of really great musicians in this town that could or that are good enough or better than a lot of much more famous artists from other places sure. that there's this crest that you have to get over where you make enough money locally to where you can finally justify touring regionally and then you can finally um, justify touring maybe a little bit nationally and then really have national tours and then very possibly eventually international tours. And it's this tiered thing that you have to go through. And if you can't get past that first tier where you're getting enough money locally, it's really, really hard to justify getting to the regional level. So even with Spotify and even with Spotify, the, I don't give you any money. I know, but I mean, it gives you exposure and the level, the yeah. leveling of the playing field in that way of yeah. at least making everyone's music available. Like you would, you would think that a lot, I mean, we've had some good ones, uh, 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 uh William Wilde and, um, and, uh, Oh, God. There's one East Tennessee artist named uh, you might have heard of him, Kenny Chesney. Yeah, yeah, he okay. did pretty good. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay, but 
But that was kind of before. Like I feel I like he lo- was big I, before I think my local time. patronage. Also, I th- and I may have to accept some cre- some of the blame for. I put on a show once a week for free that bands could come and play on and people didn't have to pay and they came and watched this band for free. Why the hell am I going to go pay to see them at the club later that night? I yeah. just I just saw what they do. Did that have, did that, uh, were bands ever skeptical to come on the Blue Plate because of that reason? They didn't want to cannibalize their night show? No, no, because I don't think it was a real problem. Yeah. But but I do think that there is a problem when uh, I know that I had came to not, do certain things in this town when I would watch a bar make thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in profit while I was playing yeah. and then get paid a hundred bucks. Yeah. And, um, there were, there are places that that's a problem. And, yeah. um, so that's why people go to Nashville because you can, that's why I barely play in Knoxville. You yeah. Know? Like I, I don't, you know, there's, there's just got to be the got to get paid. There's, yeah. If you're good, if you, if you, if people come to see you play, you're going to have to get paid to do it. You yeah. Know? So if you're, if you're a bar owner or a music venue owner, you own a small, small room, let's say the square room, for instance, was your, mm-hmm. was your room with a restaurant attached to it? How do you approach that situation to, uh, be fair to the musicians, uh, while also, you know, staying in business. It's from a case, it's not a case by case basis. Like in that particular instance, the square room was funded by the Clinaris. An, an incredibly well, <laughs> a, a foundation with very, very deep pockets. And, um, was managed by, an individual or a, a couple that had access to all that money. Right. And um, they very much could have been one of those places and opted not to be. Well, if, if you're going to draw the blueprint for, for a, a, a room or for a bar, that's a bar most of the time that has, that has music. If you're going to make a musician's kind of bar, what's it look like? Like what's, is there music? Are there, is there music seven nights a week? Is the you know, bar open all the time? Is it a bar first and a that happens to have live music? What's the because there's a, a big difference between you know the the Bijou and the you know and and in a preservation pub or a, a pilot light or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, if, if if you're a millionaire listening to this podcast and you want to inspire. A, a a thriving music scene in Knoxville, Tennessee. Go and talk to Jason Boardman at the Pilot Light. They're now a nonprofit organization. Give them ten thousand dollars a month, which is nothing to you, and watch the music scene blossom. Really? Uh, yeah. There, the, there, a venue, a stage that's a stage for music that doesn't really exist. In Knoxville, yeah, it's a it's a it's a stage that's an engine to sell alcohol at a bar, right? Or it's a stage that's uh, in the corner of a large restaurant, right? To sell food and alcohol, yeah. Um, we don't have, other than the larger theaters, um, clubs that are dedicated to music. The Mill of Mine's a little big, but it's it's proof that actually bands will stop here. You yeah. know, that's every show I've been to there. It's fabulous. Um, but having this town needs clubs with money. Um, and it's hard to, in the current economy with the high, high rent is and everything. Most of, most of the places where I travel in the world and play music, um, that pay me well, but maybe when they go back, they put me up at a nice hotel and do all this stuff. They have endowments. The government helps them. 
or um, uh, art, arts foundations and right. endowments help them. Uh, gotcha. There is no great art without patronage. I mean, every great painter, composer, historically that we know of, sculptor, dancer, even bands, there is a patron somewhere that's propping them yeah. up. Very, very, very few of them have that organic build of what we're told a business yeah. is supposed to build like. So I'm sure you've been to Austin. Uh, uh, something that always fascinated me about Austin is like the Friday happy hour stuff. You walk mm -hmm. by the Continental Club, there's, you know, there's music going on at five o'clock on South Congress on a Friday afternoon. You go to these little, these little bars across town. There's bands playing, not at night, but at happy hour, yeah. at, at, at quitting time. And I know that Austin is flush with talented musicians, but it, it just, it seems like music has become such a big part of that town's culture and that state's culture in, you know, in particular, uh, that it then became almost the, I would say maybe the biggest part of its identity. Yeah. Maybe. Definitely. Austin. And so you've got to, I guess you have a chicken and egg problem. And, and that's why, that's why, you know, these endowments and things that you talk about can certainly help. But, you know, I, I long for the day that, that I, that I walk down Market Square and I hear music coming, a live band playing at, at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday or Saturday or something like that. that that's just the profit motive's got to go. I mean, at, at first, at least, you yeah. know, it's got to be about the music. And yeah. I know that on that particular slice of real estate, Everybody's there to make money. They're, yeah, you know they're they're definitely if they're there to make money or they're there to at the most generous make something kind of cool happen. But like uh, as far as music being the focus, it's hard, man. Because God, it's, it's we think we're raised rock stars. That's the that's the pinnacle. Everything's got to be rock star money. Yeah. Got, and. Everybody that gets good thinks they can make that kind of money. Um, I also wonder, too, if there's also just way more of a flood of pretty good bands now than there have been because we can self-distribute, self-record and do all this stuff and yeah. give ourselves the illusion that we have a career to be made in this mm. industry. Um, I still think, though, I mean, there was a time in Knoxville, Tennessee, that this was a cool enough town to host a World's Fair. And uh, there was a real happening rock and roll scene and people were doing stuff. And we go through these, you know, ebbs and these flows. I don't, I don't, I, I wish I had an easy solution, but I do think, I do wish that the people that have a whole lot of money in this town were able to come off of a little bit of it um, just in the interest of, it doesn't take that much to compensate bands just a little bit better. Right. It doesn't take that much to turn off the sports games and shut down the restaurant and line up some chairs to where it seems like you're in a venue for a second. Yeah. It's, it's that, that, that might, that might be just a little slice out of your nightly revenue on a Friday or a Saturday night. Right. Um, but it takes a little forward thinking. It takes creative thinking this, and this, it, I mean, it's just an easy city to kind of be lazy in and to kind of be okay with how things have been going. It, it, it feels like there is a huge disparity in between those that are profit motivated in in the music scene and the uh the folks that sponsored the the yo-yo ma event for instance that that you mentioned it doesn't seem like there's a whole hell of a lot of middle ground there and i feel like 
what is happening in that middle ground is we have kind of one guy, Ashley Caps, who's kind of kind of filling that in a little bit yeah. to me because I mean he's he's he did great. He sold AC for four million dollars or whatever it was, but you know, that's not Cleveland Browns money. Yeah. You know, but he's still using his influence and uh and no, nothing but props to that guy. I mean right. like, it's but but it seems to me like filling in that bringing some more parity to the game and getting some more people in that level who who have influence but also have a little bit of money to take a risk could, could or like really a, go along or like way. Ashley have the trust of the people with the money to where he says hey Yo-Yo Ma's team has got this idea for this big ambitious project they want X number of million dollars um, to put together this huge program it's going to be great for the region it's going to be something you're going to be proud of to put your name on blah 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 and that's how something like that gets sold yeah and uh, yeah uh, it's I don't know I've banged my head against that wall in this town my whole adult life you know (laughs) and uh I still like to do fun things, um, maybe le- with less and less expectation that they are going to have business success because it's, I think there's just a few things that need to change. I wish I had the magic answer for that. I, t- I mean, I like, literally talk to people about this all the time. Really? I know most of the people who own most of the venues sure. and a goodly number of the musicians and everybody wants to be making more money. Yeah, you know, everybody wants more people to show up for the concerts. Um, but it's it's a problem. It is a problem in this town, and I don't think people talk about it enough. That's another thing. People love to talk about what a beautiful music-filled, artsy, amazing maker community this is. Everybody I know that's making making stuff to sell, everybody I know that's um, uh, working on art, everybody, they're all struggling. There are very, you know, nobody, none of the musicians in Knoxville are making career money doing this. Right. Uh, nobody making, selling paintings at a farmer's market is making yeah. career money doing this. I ran into Andy Wood the other day. Yeah. And, and now that's a guy that's doing pretty good. Uh, yeah. That's about one of the only. You know why? Patreon. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, and you know what else? You know why else? Why? He doesn't perform in Knoxville. Right. He's playing with. Uh, he, he, he goes out and he, well, he does, he does club gigs in other places with smaller groups. I guess yeah. paid well to do it. It's just, he doesn't play here. Yeah. He plays with Rascal Flats and, and, yeah. and, and the likes of those guys. But yeah, I, I just checked on, I checked on him before I interviewed him for the podcast a couple of years ago. And I just looked around and, and saw a huge YouTube following and a huge Patreon following, like a, you know, 2000 patrons or something like that mm-hmm. and it's like you know you start adding adding that stuff up and it's like okay this guy's kind of got it figured out and speaking you know that i i would i i have no qualms putting him in the virtuoso category totally. uh but that is where he has that is where he's gotten a following is with guitar nerds and people who are really fucking good at the guitar. Yeah. They're not as good as Andy Wood and they can learn from Andy Wood. And that's kind of how he's, how, where he's built his, his following and where he may, and where he makes his money. And yeah, you might catch a skank banger show at a uh, open court or something like that with him, you know, mm-hmm. dressed up like Axl Rose or, or slash or whatever. But you know, you don't, you don't get to, yeah, you don't see him, 
you don't see him journeyman style around town and that's not a knock on him i think it's smart yeah you 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 run around and you and you and you find out where your bread's buttered but i mean he i, I think he i think he has he has found a a, a market or he he's found a need for his services outside of the market he just I, happens to live here i'd be curious to know what the answer to that question is like what do we need to fix to for better shows to happen what the what a venue owner uh, would answer for that right like uh, you know i'm looking at it from the musician perspective but also i book shows and events and i have people ask me for amounts of money that they have i feel like they have no business asking for yeah <laughs> so right. you know there's like i said there's no clean answer to it but i do think there, there is a problem in the city with Patronage, uh, not just patronage for wealthy people giving over money, but also patronage, non-wealthy people showing up buying one beer and yeah. sitting for 30 minutes at least and watching yeah. a few songs of a band play. Yeah. Um, I, I, the, uh, you know, Loco Knoxville, the, the delivery service, oh, the sure, local yeah. delivery service right. that just recently announced they were closing their doors. Uh, it's like they're, they're friends of the show, man. I've been really close with, with those guys over there they've supported the show over the years monetarily and um you know it it's like i saw people all up in arms about you know oh no loco is going out of business this is horrible doordash and 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 uber eats or or, or grubhub are, are winning and then it's like how many times did you use loco it's like well not that many but i mean it's a cool idea yeah. it's like i feel like somebody brought it to my attention the other day that that's like our that that's a standby for for us around here sometimes is is it like oh this is cool as hell that we have this thing i'm never gonna go <laughs> you know i'm never gonna a, darken their door we have a put your money where your mouth is problem in we, this do. Yeah. we do we yeah, do and and so i i that's why I. That's why I love to to see people who like you who have, you know, made a made a a living with an identity and and with with being a legitimate working artist or musician in our town. And I I feel like I feel like there's so there's so few of them. And that's why I'm so fascinated with how you've done it and. Uh, the Andy Woods of the world and, and the people who are really, really doing it and not, and, and not to, not to disparage anybody in the music industry yeah, who's course. making, trying to make ends meet by, by doing other things. But it's just very rare that you see someone who, who finds their spot in the industry that they love, like music or you know, art, whatever it is. And, and that's all they do. It, it, it really feels like it, it really feels like it, uh, I don't know. To me, it, it, it's really a, it's impressive. You know, I, I don't know if you have like a South of Scruffy discussion thread of, of any kind of, or you should start one, but I'd be very interested in uh, people's ideas about why are we at, where are we at? Yeah. Are, are we at a good place? And yeah. it's, and I'm just complaining. Now, are, are we old men? It might be, <laughs> I mean, we might be fine. There's also like an entire generation younger than us that as far as I know, there could, there could be bumping clubs full of people in these great music communities that we don't even know about. Yeah. You know, like, well, that's what fascinated me about the William Wilde and the serious brights of the world that, that yeah. came on the podcast. And it's like, I have never heard their music. And then people introduced me to him because they said I needed to have him on the show. And so I studied up, I listened to their music, I started to look into their careers. And it's like, 
they have had careers as as musicians that just missed my radar yeah. altogether. And they live in Fourth and Gill, you know, but they're touring the world and they have, you know, 200,000 Spotify listeners a month and they're selling out club venues all over the country. And they just never did play Preservation Pub. They never did play mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Pilot Light. And, and it's, it is almost like a, you know, there the, there might be a little uh, uh, shadow Gen Z kind of uh, scene out there that yeah, I just don't hologram, know about. The hologram pedal guys. What's you know that? About this hologram. No, no. Oh, I'm glad I get to tell you something about this city. So there's like, I forget these guys. One of the guys in the Royal Bangs got geeky about building his own effects pedals for his guitars oh, cool. and got met an engineer who had this insane idea and so they teamed up and they started hologram um and they have a little shop over uh, on broadway in north knoxville and every famous guitar player in the world uses their pedals really it's like one of the it was like top five selling guitar effects of the year no for the last kidding. few years. And it's like this sleeper thing that most people don't know about in the little storefront right in North Knoxville. And they sell these epic guitar pedals that sound like nothing else that anybody in the world really? is making. So how does that work? Because I know I've got a buddy, Blake Cass, and I don't know if you know him or not, but he might work there. Uh, but he, he either does guitar pickups or pedals or something like that. It's, You're so cute. I know. I know. <laughs> I don't know shit. They just got strings on them. <laughs> yeah. Well, how does that, how does that work? How do you make a guitar pedal? Well, that, a guitar pedal that makes a different sound than anybody's ever heard. Before? Well, the signal from the guitar goes into one side of it, right? Yeah. And then, um, and, and, some shit happens inside of it to electrical signal. Yeah. Depending on the different transistors and yeah. circuit boards or whatever else you have in there, they process the signal. You can control it on the top with the little knobs yeah. and the buttons and stuff. And after it gets digested in that pedal, it spits out of the other side sounding different. Yeah. That's so, kind of, I mean, that's what I figured happens, yeah. but what is, what's happening but, inside, what's happening inside. What's I'm, and I understand signal flow a little bit. Think but, about like, uh, when you turn on a fluorescent light, mm-hmm. yeah. that's on a shitty one. It yeah. makes a sound. Yeah. That's the sound of electricity. Right? Yeah. That's the simplest sound to think about the 60 cycle hum of a ballast and a fluorescent type, but that's yeah. all electricity makes has a, has a vibration like that. You take that sound and you put it into a guitar effects pedal. Mm-hmm. Um, the, cable that it's flowing through can go through all of these different capacitors say for older style pedals where it's just like a a little bulb with some wires coiled around in it that takes that it makes it go breathe 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 you know that it'll go through another one that takes that breathe breathe make it go breathe and then through another one and and then you know and you can control those parameters on the top of the thing with the little knobs right. and the buttons and and uh, you set your setting and then we turn that pedal on that makes that sound and it changes it yeah that's you know they're ones that cycle the sound and make reverb and delay sounds and things like that i so, just think it's i i, I just don't know how they're still doing new stuff with those things. I would feel like they would have figured it all. They would have ships. Yeah. You know, also there's a full circle where the er- earlier pedals were, were like hand built 
um, and then it, you know, computer chips were invented, and so all the things that the old school capacitors and tubes used to do were able to get digitized. Yeah. And but that has it doesn't sound as good. So now they're all there are people going back to the old style, yeah, of back to analog, stuff. right? And making it sound like the old pedals, but newly built with yeah. you know with slightly newer technology. So yeah, star pedals are cool. Yeah, it is, uh, that is cool, and it it's it, it seems like we would have you know those kinds of cottage industries. You hear about people in Nashville who you know work in a guitar shop and work in a pickup shop or or whatever it is. So it's cool to hear that we have these cottage industries around music that are, yeah, that are kind of popping up. And your shop guitar, was one of them. A couple of great guitar builders who have, since I, since I was in the business, who've set up here, you know, we, we had this like great pandemic where most of the world shut down. I don't know if you remember, but like a lot of people came to Knoxville during that time. Yeah. And we've really only had since, the end of the quarantine part of the pandemic, we've really only had like a year and a half, two years to date. You know, for those of you listening, today's date is what, like May thirty, May thirtieth, twenty twenty three. Yep. Um, once again, I think about when you put something out like this on the internet, but you know, <laughs> you got to remember the time. It's state. there forever. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I some of my favorite podcasts that I listen to were literally recorded 15 years ago. Really? So, um, Analyze Fish, that's a really good one. Oh, with Harris Whittles? Oh my God. It's Pour so one good. out for that guy. So good. That guy was fascinating. Yeah, it was so good. Yeah. I, I, I just thought that, yeah, anyway. Are you a fish fan? I was. And after listening, I was when I was a teenager, I would go to fish concerts and then was that to, to, the to be bad at selling drugs, or did you just <laughs> go as a fan? Part of the same dipshit <laughs> mentality. And then I got over it, and then listening to that podcast, and I was like, I'm going to try to listen to fish again. And I'm like, man, I could get into this, you know. Yeah. And so I'll still I'll put on fish every once in a while when I'm cleaning the house now. Yeah, I, I like to. Uh, uh, I, I definitely like to go to their concerts, and and I think they're. Some it's some of the most fun you can have at their shows. They're, I gotta go. I gotta. I haven't been to one. I've had a bunch of buddies invite me. And in. oh, you should come to Atlanta in in July. We're uh, going for a week out of the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh well, I need to pee, dude. Let's just do it on the in the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Get out the bucket. <laughs> this would be a great. Okay, uh, commercial break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. I guess by the time this podcast comes out, you will have already played your show at Yeehaw, but Sarah knew about it. I didn't know about it yet for some reason. What uh, What's the show at Yeehaw? What's the outfit you're playing with now? Uh, well, it changes depending on what I do, really. Like... I do a lot of stuff. You know, I can play super, super traditional banjo music. I've been writing a lot of weird psychedelic stuff lately. Did on I, the banjo? No, on electric guitar. Yeah? Yeah. And um, got some, like, techno shit. Really? Like, yeah. Didn't you have, like, a world groove show or something on WDVX that came on late That night? was the Happy Camper show. That was Happy Camper? Yeah. But that was the two hours that was international, international music, stuff? yeah. Okay. I did all different kinds of stuff. Jam band music and 
Yeah, all kinds of crap. So what's the outfit that you're playing with at Yeehaw? Is this uh, John Whitlock and... John Whitlock and my buddy Chris Zor playing bass. Yeah, Chris who? Chris Zor is his okay. name. And uh, yeah, you will have missed it by the time you heard this podcast. But we are going to play some more. I think we have... We're going to play August 16th at Alliance Brewing Company. For oh, our cool. buddy Jessica does a concert series there. Jessica Watson's great. And um, we might tour with it. We might not. I'm touring with uh, my fiddling friend named Ferd Moise. We have a band called Ferd. Nice. And uh, we, you know, our bassist lives in New York. Ferd lives on a sailboat on Lake Pontchartrain in New Orleans. Hell and yeah. I live here. So we mainly only do festivals. We're playing the Nelsonville Music Festival this year, which is going to be uh, crazy. Where is that? Nelsonville, Ohio, but, mm-hmm. which doesn't sound like much, but if you look up that festival lineup, it's like, yeah. holy crap. <laughs> yeah. A bunch, a bunch of big names. And is it kind of like the Newport Folk Festival, like y- used to be before everybody knew about it, I guess? It was just kind of like this. A lot of the bands played at this festival played at Big Ears. Really? Like, yeah, it's crazy. There's like psychedelic music and techno music. And, That's cool. Um, big Thief. I love that Hell band. Yeah. And, uh, but Michael Hurley's going to be there, and we've got it's going to be a hoot. Sierra Farrell's going to be there. Yeah. So. so you met you met her a while back, a long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah. before she was, she was Sierra. She was a street performer, a busker. She was a busker, and um, yeah, she's a she's a wild chick, man. She seems like somebody who is really doing the thing, and I'm like. That her album that whenever it came out, two thousand one, the uh, long time coming album. It's mm-hmm. like how okay, so she she's what thirty five years old, thirty six years old now, or something like that, and she just came out with her first studio album, and it's this good. Did she not record something before? That might be her first thing. I, I think it's it's only one on Spotify anyway. Mm. She's recorded some covers and things like that. She recorded uh, just recently recorded. Uh, She's Seven obviously got that like very rare nuclear fire inside of God. her that like very very few people are able to harness. And I'm really interested. She's got she's got a new album that she's recording, and that's going to be really cool to see. Oh, so excited! Me me and the me and the misses are 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 pretty pretty obsessed with that stuff right now. Yep. Sorry, Big Ears heard about her stuff when we were seeing Billy Strings in in uh, Nashville. Back in February or March, we uh, we met with a buddy who was camping with us. We took our camper up there, and he we, he got there before we did, and he stopped at a brewery in Nashville, and he was like, "Man, I just I just sat next to Sierra Farrell at the bar and talked to her for like twenty yeah. minutes." And I she's, was like, "She's very personable, very sweet girl." Is she? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, how do you get from? I mean, in in her case, from from being a busker and really really doing it to somebody. I don't know to 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 get in traction like she has. I mean, she's really. I think she's going to be huge. That's a question for her. Yeah, like, something happened. Yeah, uh, it, some. Do you think so? I mean, it seems well, like it was. She honor- always had an incredible voice, you know. Yeah, and you know, I know. Like for me, I I went years as a sideman, and I'm still a sideman largely, and I only when I turned 40, like started maybe a little bit before that started really being serious about writing my own music. Uh-huh. And, and uh, 
my musician friends actually like my songs. Yeah. I just got a text from him. I had a rehearsal right before I came over here for the thing tomorrow night. And my grouchiest friend was like, dude, that song is so stuck in my head. It's so really? good. Blah, blah, blah. You know? So, yeah. What What are you writing songs about? Like, what's the subject matter? Everything. You know, yeah. the song, you know, the song he's talking about was like, like a, a free association, like psychedelic head trip thing that I wrote on a weird instrument that I'll play tomorrow. And, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's neat. I, I love like with Sierra, I love the idea of getting to once again, back to what we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation not being afraid to take risks and it's a big risk for an old man to make up songs and stand up on stage and sing them. It takes a lot of vulnerability and, um, but yeah, I mean, I write songs about everything that happens to me. I'm, I'm working on a body of songs right now about, um, about, uh, uh, putting my, my girlfriend on a sandwich and eating her. Like, Like it's a, it's a, it's an opus. <laughs> I want to eat you on a sandwich. That's the whole, yeah. that's the whole body of work or just one song. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's several songs that string together with a similar theme. A regular game hinge. Cannibalism. Yeah. <laughs> I've always said, I want my funeral to be everyone's first experience with cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> it's sick. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And and I love like with talking about, you know, Sierra's arc too, to be in your mid thirties and like something hits, like you just, you never know. I think about. It's a good time for it to happen. Sure. You kind of know some stuff finally, yeah. you know, I, I think about the, uh, you know, Christoph Waltz, the, the actor that was in, uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. He was in both those Tarantino movies. He was the villain in. Uh, yeah. Oh, I know him very well. He's yeah, one and of it's my favorite like, actors. Right. Me too. Yeah. And it's like the guy was a, a a journeyman theater actor until he was fifty years old, and then he won back to back Best Supporting uh, Actor Oscars. I want you to uh, on a, the Knoxville relation to that. I want you to meet Sonny Parton, the fire okay. marshal for okay. Knoxville. Okay. And think about that guy. Really? They're like, is they he could, German? They could be or brothers. Austrian? No, no, they just look like brothers <laughs> and they dress the same. <laughs> I just think it's so, it's so cool that, that you, you know, you work like why, why do people get famous when they're Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift's age when they don't, when they, you know, they've sure they've done work. They've 50% of their lives, they've been making music, but it would seem to me like talent that's, that's found and, and honed you know, for, for 20 years. I mean, that seems like your mid thirties and forties is a great time to start realizing that stuff. And it, 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 I feel like that's, you don't you don't see it enough out there. People give up probably. They give up. You think? Well, they got to pay the bills. Yeah. You know, I've been I'm really fortunate through my life of being a musician where I've got a bumper sticker that state that lives on my refrigerator and has for years. It says real musicians have day jobs. I heard a, Really great uh, interview the other day with a Thoreau historian. Oh, wow. And um, Thoreau is known as this epic poet, blah, 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 that, you know, spent all these years on Walden and you wrote all these, you know, immensely deep reflections on living simply and getting close to nature and all this stuff. 
But Thoreau, through his whole life, was always a handyman. He was a janitor. He was a carpenter. He would take gigs, putting new floors in people's houses and all kinds of stuff. He didn't write extensively about it, but he always said, I, you know, I always want to have something else to do. Um, I do worry when, when people like people have a meteoric rise when in their art, right? It's almost never sustainable. Mm. Something strikes addiction, uh, People's tastes change. You make some bad financial decisions. Right. Something like that. Um, there's pitfalls. Yeah. There's a, a bluegrass band called The Seldom Scene that lasted forever and ever and ever. And John Starling, the leader of that band, that was his rule for his bandmates is nobody gets to quit their day job. Like, Really? You can't be in the band if you're depending on the band for your income. Hmm. So I, I, I'm probably always going to be that way. I will always teach music lessons. I repair old instruments and restore old instruments for people. I like to, you know, my dad, uh, David Morlock, he says, he says, he taught me two things in life. He said, rule number one, love the Lord with all your heart. Rule number two, buy low, sell high. <laughs> there you go. Arbitrage, baby. Yeah. That sounds about right. But, I mean, you know, your art in media capture sure. is, is something that, it, that, that you're in a real sweet spot where it's the thing that you're really good at. Um, and you're able to make a living doing that. That's nice. You know, very yeah. few people get to do that with their art. Yeah, but some of the best people at making films don't do it for a living. I mean, we had a film festival here probably 10 years ago, the 24 hour film festival where you made a film in 24 hours. Yeah, I know. Jameson told me about it. Yeah. Yeah. It was fascinating because it got all kinds of hobbyist filmmakers out. And I was yeah. already, I mean, I was young ish in my early twenties, but I was making, this was 15 years ago, but I was making, uh, you know, making money in the, in the industry. And so I, I treated it like a real film set and like, really treated it like it would, you know, ser served people real craft services and served people real meals and all that. And, and thought I was just going to wipe the floor with the competition because I had the best people working on my stuff. And then you had these guys, uh, Brandon Langley. I still, I'll never forget this film. Uh, it was called tonight. We're born as stars. I've never seen anything in my life by, I would say a hobbyist because I think he still doesn't even work in the film industry. It's one of the best short films I've ever seen. And he made it in 24 hours wow. and he doesn't even do it for a living. And that really like recalibrated my whole thinking of how badass I thought all of us were that we're doing this for, you know, a living. It's like, I do it for mm -hmm. a living because I choose to, but there's plenty of people out there that are doing great work and even better work than me and probably more, talented and you know uh, well you've got your shit together though well i got family yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, know? you got bills to pay yeah but, but that's i back to we started this thread with sierra um what changed for all we know she could have been making up epically beautiful songs for a very long time yeah but either she or a manager or a producer or somebody or probably her a combination of all of that teamed up to where she got her business shit together and mm. um, started taking herself seriously as a musician. 
Yeah, I, th- I think she always took herself seriously as a musician, but there's a difference between that and hiring a publicist and yeah. having someone that manages your website and yeah. ske- you know scheduling studio dates and booking shows. I mean, yeah. the, music video shoots. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's a huge team behind any successful musician, uh, aside from maybe like Wolfpack. That that yeah, Wolfpack does all their own stuff. Do they really? Are they just like a band of pirates that's they're, out there? Yeah, the, they're a band of very serious businessmen. Really? Yeah, like there's a. I think a documentary about it. I haven't seen it. I've read about it. Where like they built their own thing. They booked all their own shows. They did all their own publicity. They did it. You can do it. There are templates for doing it. Most musicians, just myself included, don't have the. Uh, uh, the acumen, uh, the, on attention, every level. the attention span. Um, it's really hard to sell yourself. Do you, are you familiar with Colonel Bruce Hampton? Oh yeah, Colonel Bruce booked all of his own shows. Really? Yeah. He, man, if you're listening to the podcast and you're not familiar with Colonel Bruce Hampton, uh, start with some YouTube interviews with this man. He was like, he was like the perfect mixture of like. Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa, but Southern and just as weird as they get. And, uh, you know, a lot of really famous bands credit Colonel Bruce with right. their stuff. But Another good example of, uh, of another town, a college town, Athens, Georgia, right. who had, who turned out him and, and REM and, yeah, widespread panic <laughs> like that, that athens is another place and i think it has a lot to do with affluence unfortunately really that knoxville an affluence that knoxville just does not have mm. um where the university population the students the professors um at the university the university arts department themselves really integrated themselves very a- actively with the bands in the community hmm. there uh that does not happen in knoxville um as much it does man like uh i know that like my my pal sean mccullough who you should totally have on the show by the way i'm down um he's he's a songwriter and musician in knoxville but he's also a professor at ut and teaches the appalachian music uh, appalachian music history class there and the rock history class what he makes the students go to shows good he's like you, the, you this is one of your assignments you have yeah. to go to this number of shows you got to write a paper about this yeah when saw. i did theater in high school our, our uh theater teacher you know part of our credit was going to plays i wonder if that's something that could change you know we talk about it's i mean it's hard to make money period in the world um and I do wonder if talking about the bands should, or the bar should be paying the bands more, the bands should be t- doing better business, blah, blah, blah. I wonder if it, a, a good, a good first step, at least in Knoxville, would be uh, infiltrating the university. Yeah, like a- academia supporting the uh, young supporting, people. Yeah. You, you know, guys our age aren't going to keep venues alive. Just not. Yeah, would like not anymore. I'm not sorry. I, did, I I tried. No, it's gotta be. It's gotta be young time. people. I did too, and I still I go to way more shows than 99 percent of the guys my age. Right. Um. But, and you know who else does? Ashley Caps. Yeah, dude. I will be at a 
band. I'll be at a band with 10 people at it and dude will be sitting there having a beer watching the band. Yeah. That's, you know, and I wonder if it's like, just get somehow provide an incentive for the professors to make their students go to the shows or something like that. I don't know. About uh, Colonel Bruce. I mean, I'm sure you and I are going to, are, are, are going to have, you know, glorious deaths as well. And it'll be great. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. Uh, like he, he, he died in a very Mark Twain fashion. He, was it his seventieth birthday, eightieth birthday? I think he was seventy. Died on stage. Yeah, in Athens, Georgia. He he was very well known for his stage theatrics. Yeah, like I saw him like standing in a large pizza, gargling peanut butter into a microphone one time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean. But yeah, the way that Bruce died, it was his birthday party. It was at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. It was in Atlanta? Yeah. Okay. And like... Beautiful A venue. bunch of people who are now rock stars who came up worshiping Colonel Bruce that were on stage. It was the finale of his birthday show. Yeah. And he has this young protege who he is taught to play. And he turns around and kicks a solo to the protege, the He's shredding on the guitar and Colonel Bruce in his theatric fashion falls on the ground and lays on his feet and looks up at the kid. The kid's taking this solo, but Colonel Bruce never gets up. Yeah. And he dies. Yeah. Lying on the feet of his young protege on a stage filled with rock stars on his 70th birthday. Jesus, man. <laughs> Everyone's like, well, I guess, I mean, nobody I mean, nobody was that broken up about it. It was like, boy, I'll, t- I'll tell you the, I met Bruce several times, but the first time I met him, I was maybe 19, I think 18 or 19 years old at Blue Cats on the Cumberland Avenue Strip in Knoxville, long gone club. And... Me and some buddies is the only time in my life that I ever tried uh, ecstasy in oh, DMA. That all stuff. <laughs> I took this ecstasy. Ben did say we can't talk about drugs because my grandma listens to the podcast. <laughs> we can talk about that. <laughs> ben didn't wasn't there. <laughs> it sounds like it was a roaring good time. And we went backstage there. afterward, and we were sitting with Bruce. And he looked around at us and this dude at the time he was in his, he was, he had seen a lot and uh, he could tell we were out of our minds, but he, sure enough, he looked at me and he says, what's your name? And I said, Matt, and he said, um, you're from Knoxville. I said, yeah. And he, he looked at me and he said, September 20th. And I said, my birthday. And he goes, yep. He looks over at my friend Chad and he said, What's your name? And he said, Chad. And he said, September 27th. And Chad's like, what? And he looked at all, and we were with two girls and, and uh, guessed you, all four of our birthdays. Are you kidding to, me? After hearing our names. Are you kidding me? No, he was famous for it. He was famous for guessing people's birthdays and guessing really weird personal things about people. And he got four in a row? And he got four in a row. That's 
Yeah. There's something else going on no, here. That, that's that's David Copperfield, from, David Blaine from, shit. From 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 here on, any anytime you ask somebody that knows that new Bruce, ask him about that. The guessing the birthdays thing, and wow. he was he was very very well known for it. Like, yeah, I always you know from listening to him and from hearing other musicians who I respect talk about him, like he was just the most amazing player and the most amazing human ever. But there had, you know, there, there's got to be something a little extra to his, uh, to his brain or his yeah. personality that drew people to him so much because he never really got super mainstream famous, but everybody knew weird. him. He was too weird. Yeah. Everybody knew him and everybody loved him. I mean, yeah. it was like he was everybody's best friend. It seemed like, yeah, that's, you know, like there, I'm not a superstitious person, definitely not a religious person, barely a spiritual person. But, like, I I can't entirely not believe in magic. Yeah, I can't either. I can't not. Because of little things like that. Yeah. You know, just little, like, oh, that's just too. Yeah. That's too. Coincidental. Coincidental. Yeah. Like, uh I've had so many things like that happen in my life. You, dude, you don't even know. I haven't even told my stories. I'm saving them for the book. Okay. <laughs> some, some of the shit that I've gotten into is like, okay, there's some weird some cloud hanging over that guy's head. Like a happy cloud most of the time. Are you writing another book? Didn't you say you wrote a banjo book? Well, it was, it was a large pamphlet that had everything to do with historical banjos of interest to a small handful of human beings. Well, but. I mean, everybody <laughs> who watched Bela Fleck's documentary would be interested in that. Probably, book, probably. Right? Uh, but the the book I want to write is... It, it started, and I've written a lot of it, is about this crazy gig I had for a few years playing banjo in a Chinese folk ensemble in New York City. <laughs> and I would fly up and play for a month and fly back. And I had an apartment in Chinatown in New York. And then eventually, it's a very long story that I'll try to sum up in a few sentences. Um, we had a chance to go to China to play. And... uh a bunch of shit happened, and then we got there. And I was in a remote region of northeastern China, and realized that it was not the tour that I was sold. And when I was playing in whorehouses, uh, but the the prostitutes were uh, young young Korean girls, and came to find out uh, after a coincidental meeting with one of the only non-Chinese people that I saw on this trip, that my hosts uh, were human traffickers. And um, I was enslaved for three weeks in China, um, traveling around playing for creepy Chinese mafia guys uh, that wouldn't let me know what city I was in or wouldn't let me out of my hotel. And uh, I was... I was basically enslaved by human traffickers playing banjo for creepy Chinese businessmen who were buying children into sex slavery. Oh my God. Yeah. Would you, would you rather have not known that? Because it seems like there was some bliss to that ignorance you had going on. No, it was pretty obvious that some crazy, wild, nasty, bad stuff was happening. And I uh, was furious, but I was trapped. I was ready to go home. And it's like, take me to the airport. I'm fine home. And they're like, no, you know, 
We're not taking you anywhere. I, you know, where was your passport during they, all this? It was held. They were holding my pass. They yeah. took my passport when we landed in Beijing. Yeah, that's and, what I hear. You got to hold on to your passport, from what I understand. They took it and they held it and they gave it back to me when they dropped me off at the train station at the end of the tour. And the guy who I ran into, who was actually with Mercy Corps, he he was like, "Dude, I was telling him, I was like, I'm trying to figure out how to get out of here." He's like, "Don't." Just finish your trip and get out. Then these guys won't let you go. And if you cross them, they can disappear you and nobody will care. Did you have to act like you didn't know what you were a party to they, during that? Not really. They yeah. didn't care. They, they didn't. You know, it was so blatant, you know. Really? It's the, that, that, that's a, one of the many dimensions of like Chinese society that is just a horrible way out in the open mm. and nobody cares, you know. Did you get tied up with these with your band from back home? Is that or from New York? Is that how you got introduced yeah. to these guys? Were they family of the these guys? The manager of the band, the manager of the band in New York, one of her jobs was fixing documents for people from China who wanted to come and live in New York City. Hmm. Helping them find places and translating documents and stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, it's in the book. Dude. Yeah, it's in the book. Banjos <laughs> over Beijing. B.O.B., <laughs> <laughs> baby. They're just but, like outcasts. <laughs> but, but, man, it's one of just these crazy situations. Get in, go back to what I, I always like to make, give stories a, a circle. So yeah. The circle back to like, not that the shit that's happened to me has had anything similar to do with what's happening to Sierra Farrell. But sometimes I think that there's just a magic electricity that enters a life. And I think it enters everybody's life to a certain degree. I mean, I'm sure you feel charmed. You've had some amazing stuff happen to you. Sure. And you've gotten to meet some amazing people. You have an amazing family and life. I think if you surrender yourself to that electricity, when, when it enters your life, you're not afraid of where it wants to take you. Um, you can get yourself involved in some really, really, really cool stuff. So, be opportunistic when those things happen, and and be a be a consummate uh, uh, yes person. As long as you're, as long as you feel safe, and maybe not even you don't even have to feel safe. Really, God, I've 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 done some very unsafe things in the interest of adventure. <laughs> I mean, I do it kind of every year when I do those international fly fishing trips. We go and, you know, I'm sitting in the middle of Medellin, like, am I going to make it home? I'm going to make it home, right? I've never had cocaine before in my life, but I got to tell you, back to, I know we're not supposed to talk about drugs. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. But I have a friend from Medellin who's like, when I told her, I was like, whoa, and then we were standing up. I was like, I've never tried cocaine. She was like, you got to come to Medellin and do cocaine with my grandma. <laughs> <laughs> it's a totally different experience. And I'm like, yes, if that ever happens. <laughs> well, there you go. Like if, yeah, if I was going to do it, that's probably where I would do it too. You so, know, it's the only place I would ever do it. Well, it's, it's, it's like, like drinking beer there, you know, it's, <laughs> it comes right out. It's not, it's not step on by the cartel you know in miami or whatever you're getting it right out of the plant yeah. with my grandma oh that's so good so ben yeah 
This is a one-hour podcast, and yeah. and uh, by my estimation, we've been sitting here for almost two hours. Yeah. So you've got a couple options. Yeah, one of them is you're going to edit it down to an hour. Yeah, probably yeah, not. Yeah, the one is a two up. Is a two two episodes. You know, uh, people have been digging the long ones. I've gone an hour and a half, two hours. Bro, on I love it. Yeah, you know, I people, hope that if you're listening, like that our conversation has made your yard mowing more interesting. Yeah, exactly. Or your road trip more exactly. interesting. Well, I am. Uh, you know, I'm. I'm hoping that. Yeah, you and I have have, of course, just rubbed elbows over the years but this is i would say without a doubt the most time we've ever spent uh in the same room together certainly the most time we've ever spent talking together and so um now there's a lot for me to be to be curious about for sure but i would i would hope that this is not the last time uh, that we get to do this because you've got a you got it. You got next time I have to interview you. I'm down. It's All been right. done before, but I'm down. <laughs> so, Ben, you've done you've done two thousand people. I mean, does how that- do I get to do cocaine with your grandma? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my grandma's so cool. She probably she probably do it. <laughs> She'd be like, "Well, let's go to Columbia." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man. Cool. Well, well they- I I love I love it. Thanks for doing it. And totally, man. I am uh, very appreciative, and we'll do it again um, sometime. If you're if you listen to this podcast, well, you are because you just heard me say that. Um, I want I want to make sure that you know that. Um, oh, never mind. <laughs> Is that the teaser for the next one? <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> I love it. See you, man. <laughs>